from KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. At the outset of his new memoir, Unforgetting, San Francisco-based journalist and author Roberto Lovato says that epic history is best understood as a stitching together of intimate histories. It was a search for his own family's intimate history that took Lovato from his native California to El Salvador, where his parents were born, and where war, gang violence, and mass migration have laid siege to the populace for decades. Roberto Lovato joins us to share what he learned about his family and the lives of other Central American immigrants shaped by humanitarian crises. And welcome, Roberto Lovato. Honor to be with you, Michael. Glad to have you. And first off, congratulations on your book, which was released on the 1st of September. And uh, I must say, as a reader of your book, uh, let me commend you for not only a poetic work, but a highly disturbing and certainly poignant work as well. I noticed that uh, Carolyn Forche, uh, no less, uh, one of our great poets and humanitarian uh, uh, advocates uh, gave you a very fine review, so congratulations on that as well. Let's let's begin though by talking, uh, if we could, about something that goes well to the heart of your book, and that's its title. Um, we're talking about uh, unforgetting, and unforgetting actually has a Greek origins for you, doesn't it? It has a Greek origin for me and for uh, the Western world and civilization. It, uh, it it comes from the idea that the Greeks had that when you died, you went into the underworld and you either went to Hades or Elysium. But before going there, you had to cross the Lethe River, which was the river of forgetting. And so the word Aletheia has the word Lethe in it, and it means to forget. And so the, the Greeks and later on philosophers of fascism like Hannah Arendt also reintroduced and reimagined uh, unforgetting as a way to bring up the memories that especially the powerful would love us to forget. And so whether it's the powerful of, you know, state or the powerful in our families, like the head of the family, like a father doesn't want you to remember certain things and just keep them secret. So it's about, it's a story about family, the secrets of families, the secrets of, of peoples and the secrets of nations. And you really start, let, let's start out also talking about families because uh, you have local roots here in San Francisco from the Mission District, a kid on, who grew up on 25th and Folsom right outside of the projects. And uh, I'm wondering uh, what you really learned in terms of not only being a journalist, but uh, uh, going forward with really understanding and trying to understand your parents' past and your past and particularly how it tied into collective identity. Yeah, I, I learned that Really, I, I hate to say it, but the personal really is the political. I don't have any better way to say that. I was a crazy kid uh, when I was growing up here in the mission in the 70s when, you know, you had these incredible currents of consciousness running through the veins of San Francisco as expressed, for example, in, in the murals of the mission district that I, I grew up just as a normal thing, not as a tourist thing, right, that it is now. There were murals everywhere because it was the highest concentration of murals and it still is in the world. Or you see this, you hear this in the music of Carlos Santana, all the different consciousness, whether it was black power, brown power, uh, the women's movement, the, the LGBTQ movement that was centered here in San Francisco and the revolutionary currents of Latin America as expressed by Chileans, Nicaraguans and eventually Salvadorans who were really scary to me. And then later did I realize that I would become one of them. And so my craziness had this undercurrent of history behind it that I didn't even know. And so going into my family secrets, I started 
especially looking at my father who has this big heavy secret that Michael, I can't reveal it because then people won't buy my book, man. All right. So, um, (laughs) I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk with you about your father because he plays such a central role, particularly in the personal side of your memoir, but you were also, you describe yourself as a crazy kid, you know, hanging around with homies and doing some wild stuff. Uh, but also you were a born again, right wing Christian at one point, kind of an all American boy, weren't you? Michael, you're really outing me, man. I, I'm, 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 I'm blushing here. Thankfully, I, I can't be seen. But uh, I got on my knees and prayed in 1984 for the election of Ronald Wilson Reagan. I had to get out of the certain lifestyle that I was in that wasn't healthy or safe for me. I had friends that were shot in the face because of drug deals gone bad. I had a friend who hung himself. And, you know, we'd seen stabbings and other things growing up. And I needed a way out. And my friend Hiram Vasquez... Uh, here in in, the, in in San Francisco, had been a born-again Christian from his birth. He's a Puerto Rican, a lot of Assemblies of God and Pentecostal folks. And so he planted the seeds along with my mother, who had me, you know, really feeling guilty about not doing my first communion as a Catholic. But I read the Bible voraciously. My first book, real book, was the Bible. My first superhero was Jesus. And so when it came time to get out of that lifestyle, those seeds that were planted in me by Hiram and and, and by the, the violence and the scariness of things. And my mom bore the f- rotten fruit of me becoming a right-wing Reagan uh, Republican for a minute. Yeah, you could have uh, subtitled your book from Reagan Republican to Urban Commando. I mean, there's a whole big stretch there. Uh, and it's a remarkable story uh, of just sort of the avatars or the incarnations that you went to. Uh, and it, it includes really your experience going and working with refugees, Central American refugees at the L.A. Central Refugee Center and getting to meet a lot of the MS-13 members, their families. There is, I think, a, if I can say so, uh, an attempt to some degree to have us realize as readers of your book that you want us to see these MS-13 gang members as human beings. You want us, uh, in other words, to understand them as these, as they were to you, kids, often metal kids, uh, uh, hanging out at convenience stores and that sort of thing, uh, as opposed to what we're hearing from the President of the United States, that uh, they're essentially, you know, all trying to kill and maim and rape and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in my book, I talk about uh, Attorney General William Barr, but Attorney General as under Bush number t- number one, right? William Barr and Michael, uh, I, William Barr and, and Donald Trump just had a press conference last July where it centered on MS-13 in the Oval Office. And they were using all this language and stuff that you hear about MS-13. I went and I called police stations in all the, in most of the areas where MS-13 operates, like, uh, you know, Alexandria, Virginia, Houston, Texas, L.A., uh, Long Island, Prince, you know, uh, and, and other other places, including here in San Francisco. And here in San Francisco, for example, you'd think with the way that the Justice Department has these glitzy press conferences denouncing the terror of MS-13, we have this massive number of homicides. Well, here in San Francisco, MS-13 killed a grand total of two people last year in 2019. And well, this we, year, there's yeah. a grand total of zero, according to SFPD people I spoke with. And it was the same throughout the United States. One or a handful of white supremacists uh, with, you know, semi-automatic weapons has killed more than the estimated 10,000 MS-13 gang members uh, that the FBI estimates are in the United States. 
just to give you a, 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 a sense of how so I felt like I needed to go in and look into the heart of darkness, right? I use that in quotes because, you know, I'm one of those that believes Conrad, when he came up with that book and that that approach had a colonial racist approach. And so we see the extension of that approach today. And there's no group that uh, in, in the Americas that exemplifies it as much as Salvadorans in the United States, right? Along with African-Americans and other groups, but among Latinos, Salvadorans are the heart of darkness with that tattooed image of the gang member that you see that's totally false that I, 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 I you know, I saw these kids when they were, um, you know, starting in LA in the early nineties and, you know, they were, they were just stoners, like you said, Michael. Yeah, there's there's a sense in your book that they can be saved, that they're, uh, you know, too often treated like dogs and dogs become wolves. And uh, you want to indeed sort of uh, present the possibility of, uh, of not only seeing them as more humans, and, and but also people that can be salvaged or saved, especially the younger ones. Um, the violence has increased, though, and I wonder if you could comment on the Bologna case, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Edwin Ramos, uh, who was a member of MS-13 and a few years ago kill, thought he was uh, killing gang members and actually killed a father and, and two sons. It was a cause celebre and a major infamous case, and it brought a lot of attention locally to MS-13 and made a lot of people uh, opposed to sanctuary and so forth. I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of cases that, that you, you that we're using anecdotes of individual cases to try to make these larger uh, claims about MS-13, about Salvadorans, and about gangs when, you know, that case took place many years ago. And, I mean, I could go and pick any of the victims of any of the white supremacists, like the El Paso killer who had a mind to kill brown people and pick one of those cases and make them exemplary of white people, but I don't, it's silly. And so, uh, you know, I, like I said, there's 10,000 MS-13 gang members and we have maybe a handful of white supremacists who have killed more than all of MS-13 in the United States, according to FBI statistics, police statistics combined. And so my, my goal is to show, look, you have these kids who are an expression of a failed system in El Salvador and in the United States. They're also an expression of a certain kind of policing that I call counterinsurgency policing because uh, increasingly, uh, you know, I grew up maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm older than you, Michael, watching Adam 12. And I remember their uniforms being these very thin things. And now you have the cop uniform being a Robocop uniform. And so to justify this militarization of the inner city as you know, kind of the neoliberal politic of the Reagan administration empties out the local economies of the United States and of the world. You have, you know, the elites having, I believe, focusing on threats like gangs instead of focusing on the threat of, say, for example, capitalist driven climate change. And you mentioned counterinsurgency policing. I mean, uh, we should mention, or I feel obliged to mention that it's a billion dollar industry in terms of all that equipment and all those weapons and so forth. But when you mentioned Joseph Conrad, I think of the horror, the horror. And uh, you write about horror and you write about it in uh, a completely, it seems to me, transparent way because you were driven to El Salvador to really try to understand not only the gang violence that was behind the migration, but all, not only in El Salvador, but also in Guatemala and Honduras, but the civil war in, in El Salvador and all of the secrets uh, that you uh, uncover through your own excavations and so forth. And what you uncovered is pretty damning about the United States and what it was essentially complicit in. 
Yeah, I, I, I think there's two sides to the United States. I used to, I, I stopped calling myself American after I saw some of the more horrific things that our government helped do in El Salvador. Like, like I've seen the remains of the, the bones of uh, children who were among the 1,000 people killed in El Mozote uh, by U.S. trained forces uh, uh, of the Atlacat Battalion. Uh, Ten of the leading uh, military leaders were trained at the School of the Americas at Fort Benning. And, you know, I, when you see these things and I say, well, you know, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want my tax dollars to do this. I realized I needed to kind of find a different way to be American. And that's part of what my book was about is to find a different way to be at home in my skin, in my family, but also in my country here in the United States and in El Salvador, because I had shame about being Salvadoran. When you inherit this legacy of consistent violence that is among the worst in the world, uh, historically speaking, uh, you, you kind of need to go into the dark to find the light that's in there. Um, and that's kind of what, beyond just my story, the, I would hope the more universal story is that my, my book is a, is a sharing of uh, the kind of millenarian consciousness we're going to need to face the challenges of our time, whether it's not just violence and extreme violence, but you know the ascent of fascism that I fought directly, the ascent of uh, these interconnected crises economic decline. And then if we deal with those, then we're going to have to have a toe-to-toe -to -toe with climate change. So we're not going to liberal or Democrat or progressive our way out of all these combined crises. I think we need something a little stronger, which is why I revealed the part of myself that I had forgotten, the part of myself that wanted to be and tried to be a revolutionary. Talking with uh, Roberto Lovato about his new memoir, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, uh, journalist and author uh, and San Francisco native. And uh, if you would like to join us, by the way, I'd like to invite you to be part of the conversation here. If uh, and we're going to talk about more of Roberto's experiences, of course, and what he gleaned from not only going to El Salvador and actually joining in the fight there, but also uh, his experiences with gang members and so forth. Do these experiences resonate with you? Uh, I'm addressing particularly children of immigrants or as somebody who has tried to stitch together your family's personal history. You can give us a call right now and be part of the program. I invite you to do that. The number to call toll free is 866-733-6786. Again, you can be part of this conversation by joining us now toll-free at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And when you begin to go into your own family history, uh, Roberto, you, we find, well, your father, Ramon, right at the center of it and secrets that you're not going to necessarily have to reveal here and I'm not going to push for, but... There are, there are certain symbols that stand out in your book. Uh, you write like a poet, and uh, you write about particularly the machete and about your grandmother's sewing machine. Can you talk about those two things? Yeah, uh, the machete is, there are two kind of opposite symbols that I use in the book. The machete is the, that which slices up our memories. You know, I, I, I write the book in a, what's known as a braided narrative to, to show the experience of the way memory is fragmented, especially when there's high levels of trauma that fragments even further what is naturally fragmented by its essence. In order to kind of come together and bring ourselves together, we have to have some stitching together. So I draw a parallel, for example, between my search 
in the mass grave sites, the underworlds of gangs, the guerrilla organizations and all that, you know, violence and, and death that's there in bones. And my grandmother Mama Tay's stitching together of disparate pieces of cloth. I think that like I write, I wrote part of my book at La Boheme here and there's like a converted sewing machine that's a coffee table. And I try to use my words in the way that the forensicists stitched together the bones, the way that my grandmother stitched together uh, pieces of, of, of um, cloth to give dignity, for example, to the prostitutes that she was living with in the shanty town in San Salvador during a Great Depression that made um, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath look like a, a, a wine festival. <laughs> um, so, you know, I see that as a as a as a the, the necessary work, the forensic work of stitching together the memory to 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 bring the whole self back together, even in its dark side, like people like Carl Jung have advised us to do in rescuing ourselves from the grips of the shadow, which I think applies to nations as well. Because I think, for example, Donald Trump is an expression of the shadow of the United States. He's not just coming out like the narrative of Hitler coming down from on high into the people. He comes organically out of the soil of the United States. Well, you're uh, certainly speaking uh, what many people feel about Donald Trump in terms of the shadow, but you're also uh, pretty tough on Obama, too, particularly because you went and you met some of these refugees coming over from Central America who were being held and children being put in cages and so forth. And uh, you single out not only Obama, but Jay Johnson, and say, who is the Secretary of Homeland Security, and say they're pretty culpable, too. Well, you know, people were really worked up about seeing children in cages. Uh, my peers, our peers in the media, Michael, didn't somehow remember to, that the cages were started. You can look on Google and Jay Johnson and cages, Central American children, and you'll see Jay Johnson touring his, his creation of these cages. And that was during the Obama era. So I'm not trying to be tough. I'm just trying to be truthful, which is actually the word aletheia in Greek means truth as well unforgetting yeah and uh, we'll continue to uh, explore the truths that roberto lovato has found in his new memoir unforgetting a memoir of family migration gangs and revolution in the americas and again you are free to join the program and i invite you to do that either by phone toll free at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or email us forum at kqed.org i'm michael krasny This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking to journalist and author Roberto Lovato about his new memoir, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. And we certainly welcome your involvement in the program. You can join us now toll-free if you have a question or comment. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. That's 866-733-6786. There's an email, uh, Roberto, from a listener named Namiko who wants to know if you can comment on El Salvador's president, particularly his response to the pandemic and how it relates to his anti-gang agenda with the shift in keeping members of different gangs together. Yeah, you can Google images of, of Nayib Bukele El Salvador and you'll see the, the essence of the Bukele administration, which is 
and been condemned worldwide by everybody from the Committee to Protect Journalists for his attacks on journalists to uh, Human Rights Watch, which has been resistant to critique him initially and is now very strongly along with Amnesty International groups in El Salvador and around the world because he's basically adopted what critics are calling neo-fascist approaches to gangs. And it's also, you know, he's a very close Trump ally to the point of humiliating, I think, and I'm just going to get personal here because I just wrote a memoir, humiliating the Salvadoran people again uh, in terms of just bowing before the United States and its dictates in, 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 in ways. And that's why Again, I, I put the word revolution in my subtitle, which doesn't have much search engine optimization value, but it has great spiritual value right now at a time where people are looking for alternatives. And I'm not talking about armed struggle or necessarily, I'm talking about the need to have a, a millenarian sense that allows us to take on the real severe challenges that the world is turning towards. I don't think we're going to simply just elect our way out of this at this point. Now, let me just say also, as a reader of your book, that uh, there is a good deal of horror and a good deal that is of great concern in terms of uh, revealing and being, uh, well, ultimately quite revelatory about the horrors, as we said earlier. But there's also a lot of love and tenderness in this book and a lot of hope as well. I just want to emphasize that. And maybe um, you can read a passage. Uh, I, we were thinking about a paragraph in Chapter 20 where you're interviewing Santiago, a top gang leader. And he says, my main escape was books. Yeah. Happy to, Michael. And please, it's an honor to be with you. And I, I really appreciate your, your saying that about my book because we often forget, uh, you know, in the, in the sexiness and the sensationalism uh, uh, of violence and things, we forget that the love are like Joan Didion wrote that terror is a given of the place after being in El Salvador for two weeks and mostly in the air-conditioned offices of the embassy. I've spent 56 years dealing with El Salvador and I put the phrase, love is the given of the place as an inversion of that. And so this is an example of what I think. My main escape was books. I read them by candlelight, Santiago says. When I got older, an elder gang member told me, read, even if it's a piece of garbage book, read. So I buy and read lots of books. The love of reading reminds me of another kid one who, before becoming a pandillero gang member, dreamed of using reading and education to escape the cycle of poverty in the Mesones, the shanty towns. Pop, the poor kid whose love of words led him to read voraciously, despite never getting more than a second grade education. It also reminds me of my, my own childhood persona, Mr. Peabody, the guy who loved books so much. He and Freddie Weinstein began their lives of crime by stealing the entire set of Danny Dunn adventure series from the Mission Library. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, and let me get a caller on with us. Amy joins us. Amy, welcome. Hi. Um, I just wanted to sort of make a correction, Michael. You said you'd love to hear from people who are immigrants. And I want to remind everyone that unless we're indigenous to the United States, we're all immigrants. And I've recently been doing a lot of um, research on Ancestry.com into my own genealogy. And much to my horror, have discovered that my relatives, ancestors, were slave owners and even traders of slaves. And I think this book has a lot for all of us, whether we are 
recent immigrants or very long-time immigrants here in the United States. So I look forward to reading this book. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Good to hear from you. Appreciate your call. Uh, let me go back to uh, the trajectory of what you describe in your book. And uh, you actually joined a guerrilla movement against the U.S.-backed uh, fascist military government. Uh, that, talk about nicer things that involve the love affair that you write about as well. But um, a lot of this came after discovery, after really d understanding the massacres that took place, uh, not only talking about El Mazote, which uh, my friend Mark Danner has written brilliantly about, but one going back to 1932 involving your father. Again, I want to give away too much here, but uh, it's a discovery of history. Stephen Dedalus, James Joyce's character, said, you know, history is a nightmare from which we're all trying to escape. Uh, I couldn't help feeling that in reading you. Yeah, I think we have to look into the dark. We don't have a choice at this point. We can't continue believing. I mean, I knew the United States as a fascist country back in the 80s and 90s. when, And I think the, one of the greatest indicators of fascism is the way we treat children, whether it's caging them, whether it's separating them from their parents, or whether it's bombing, strafing, or doing other more horrific things. I don't want to traumatize your readers with right now, but just trust me when I, I, I tell you that uh, I've looked at the abyss and the abyss has looked back at me uh, and I, as Nietzsche says, and I think it's, it's important to, to really just come to grips with that so that we can move beyond it. At, 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 not just at a, at a national level, but at an individual level. We have well, to like, I, I wrote this because oh, I had forgotten one of the best parts of me, which was the you, part that was able to go in and do something about trying to change the world for the better in the before the ascent of a fascist military dictatorship. I had to be clandestine and secret about that, not just during the war, but for almost 30 years after the war, because nobody was going to give me a job as a journalist if, with that background. Nobody was going to give me a Pulitzer grant to go write about these things, knowing this about me. I didn't, and it wasn't safe because even after the war, the Salvadoran death squads were operating in places like Los Angeles, pursuing us, chasing women down, raping them, kidnapping them, shooting at us. So uh, it took some time for me to unforget this best part of me, besides the part of me that's a member of my family, that loves my family, um, the part of me that, that 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 were willing to make a as maximum a sacrifice as there is in the name of a, a, a better world and and justice. Yeah, you reminded me, in fact, uh, of uh, early on in my broadcast career, I interviewed uh, a member of the FMLN, uh, the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, and uh, the idea was to get someone on from the other side. The other side turned out to be someone who was recognized by the FMLN member as a member of the death squad. It was really chilling, as you can imagine, to go on the air with these, uh, having, having come to that recognition. But I, I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned trauma, uh, you write about childhood poverty, you write about intergenerational trauma, and you write about the effect of trauma uh, from state terror um, and just from the, the problems of survival and so forth. Let me ask you to just sort of key in for us what you've learned about the nature of trauma and particularly unloosening those memories, whether they're personal or national, because they can be traumatic. They are traumatic. Absolutely, Michael. I've looked at those dead squad members like the one you're talking about in the face. Not an easy thing, but I, again, you have to look into the abyss. And I also found humanity there. I have to confess. I didn't see somebody from another planet. I saw a human being who had been 
traumatized themselves, for example, in the case of one person in my book who were, has strong indigenous features, but doesn't have any sense of his indigenous past, who was ex in extreme poverty. And the only way out in El Salvador was the military. And he ended up getting, you know, trained by U.S. trainers and, and became a member of a death squad that killed lots of people. And so when you're looking at a gang member or you're looking at a death squad operative, for example, and I would even say a lot of cops, you're looking at a walking, talking trauma that has been operationalized for violence. And so um, I've, I think we have, to, again, that's one of the reasons I wrote this was to kind of show the journey that I myself had taken. Cause I'm no, I was no angel here in the mission. Uh, you know, I, 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 I did things that, that I don't, I'm not proud of. And uh, I had to kind of rescue myself from my past, but without knowing my past and the atom bomb of trauma that I inherited because I'm Salvadoran and particularly in my dad's case, as readers will see, I, I had to rescue myself from my past. And so, I mean, there's also some beauty and goodness in there. Like you here in the mission district, you had people like my good friend, Roberto Vargas and other Nicaraguan revolutionaries who were an example to me of not just going into the past and dealing with trauma that way, but also I think one of the ways you deal with trauma is action. I want to incite people to action to, to, to better this planet that is now looking like El Salvador in terms of the fascistic ascent right now. We go to Will Collar and Paul, I think, who wants to ask about fascism. Paul, join us. Welcome. You're on the air. Thank you. Um, I'm an immigrant myself, and I'm amazed at what your guest is saying. If the country is so fascist, why are there so many people from Central America coming over in droves? And what is the U.S. taxpayer supposed to do? Are we supposed to actually build nice five-star resorts for these people that are coming over when they are? You have no idea of how many are going to come. So there's going to be a, you know, logistical nightmare. Yes, but I think the whether it's Obama or Trump, they are well. Trump, I don't know, but at least Obama was doing the best he could. I think it's unreasonable for people to expect the load to be borne by the U.S. taxpayer for unlimited amount of uncontrolled immigration. Paul, I take your point. Uh, I mean, it's not sustainable, and that's uh, part of the problem, though people don't have to be put in cages or they do have rights under the law with respect to amnesty. But let me get your response, Roberto. Well, I think in terms of, this is a good question, what do we do? Well, I think that's what I wrote my book about. I don't think you just can look to the future. You have to look to the past. The United States, in the shadow of the United States, not just of Donald Trump. I mean, like Donald Trump in the case of Central Americans is the shadow self of the United States. Barack Obama is what psychologists call the mechanism of denial. He gives us that nice feeling that, hey, I'm in a good country and that's okay. When in fact, he was funding militarized policing that brutalized and made El Salvador the most violent country on earth. He caged children. He separated from for their parents. And so we have to come to grips with that before we, we, we deal. We have to deal with that reality to deal with the reality of the actual problems. And I think an apology is a beginning. I, I really do believe that in the same way that somebody like ta Coates believes there's reparations for African-Americans. I join that. But I also think there has to be war reparations to Central America. And then maturely back that with a, a Marshall Plan that helps reconstitute the society in its material and spiritual 
sense because Salvadorans, as you read in my book, we are extremely capable people of managing our own issues if we have the right resources. But when you have these simplistic stories about immigrants or gangs, and, and, and remember, gangs are the dominant image of Salvadorans in the world, then you're not going to have a real conversation. You need to have the basis for real conversation, and that's reality, and reality includes the past that we're denying. Let me uh, read a comment from a listener who, actually it's a question for you, Roberto. Uh, listener asks, can you talk about the diversity among Latinos in San Francisco that is often overlooked? What are your thoughts about the prevalence of Salvadoran culture in relation to Mexican culture? Well, you know, before I, uh, before the mass wave of Salvadorans, I had a lot of, you know, and before I became a revolutionary, honestly, I was ashamed of being Salvadoran because I have this heavy trauma that you'll read about that I inherited. And so the, the, the most colorful, beautiful thing immediately next to me in the Mission District was Chicano Mexican culture, Carlos Santana's mural, music, the murals, Norteño music. I mean, I dance Mexican Norteño music better than most Chicanos. I'm sorry, I'm gonna get a lot of flack for that, but it's true because my best friend, at you know, one of my best friends, Armando Vasquez, taught me uh, to dance Norteñas. He took me to Mexico. Or my friend, Jesus Sierra, who's a Cuban, he showed me the beauties of Cuban music and, and Afro-Cuban music. And so there's a great diversity among this within this label called Latino. I mean, part of what my book's about is to show how fluid and, 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 and even unreal these identities, even of nation states are, of whether it's El Salvador or Mexican or United States, quote unquote, American. There, there's a quote at the beginning of the book that talks about how forgetting is at the origin of nations. And, 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 and if you forget in certain ways, you're also bound to incite violence. As I say, you look under the hood of any country, whether it's El Salvador, Mexico, the United States, you're gonna find the bones and bodies of indigenous people. And I think we have to rescue this history to understand ourselves in different and new ways. Let me try to get some more callers on here. We want to get Lauren on in San Francisco. Lauren, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you, Michael. I, I teach at City College in the English department, and I had assigned research papers to people's families, and my Salvadorian students would interview their uh, aunts and uncles, and they would give them information, but they would tell them, leave all the names out because they're still looking for us here in San Francisco. Yeah, thank you for that, Lauren. Uh, You're welcome. And let me bring another caller on. That's Donnie, who's waiting patiently here from San Jose. Donnie, join us. Thank you for waiting. Thank you for having me on. So I just want to, uh, I guess, make a comment and share my experience. First of all, I think it's really great that uh, the author is really bringing uh, light to this issue, giving voices to these people. Um, I had my own experience, not gang-related, but I did my bit of trouble when I was 17 and uh, was put in the juvenile hall facility in San Jose. And whether you know it or not, the majority of people that are in there, they, that these kids are gang-related. They're either Soreños or Norteños. And um, I got to know them. And I realized I, I was shocked. You know, they're just, they're just, first of all, they're kids. Second of all, they're normal kids. They're, they, they like the same things. They're, they like to have fun. They like the same stuff. And people don't realize that they really are just victims of their circumstances. And I get so mad when people judge them or, or just, you know, say all kinds of god-awful things when they don't even understand they were born into it their parents were born into it how who, who do you want to blame when this is the life all the life you know and i talked to one kid he said i've never left san jose in my entire life 
he's only known this life. How is he supposed to escape from that? So anyway, it was just really eye-opening for me, and I just want to thank you guys. Donnie, thank you for the call. Good to hear from you. And, Roberto, we've only got about a minute or so left here. I wanted to also ask you about the cover of your book because uh, you didn't want tropicalization. You didn't want the white gaze looking in terms of stereotypes. You got uh, Hunt's Donuts there on the cover. Talk about that. Hunt's Donuts at 20th Admission was the center of the underworld, the black market uh, of, of, of the Mission District. And my dad was one of the kingpins of that area. And he used to, you know, run contraband between El Salvador and the United States, including guns. And, you know, there's my dad. And, you know, I had shame about my dad because of this stuff. And part of the story is how I went from having shame to understanding his own history and the way that the quote-unquote criminal is constructed by society, by institutions of society, including the police, politicians, and those of us, you know, that and those that Black Lives Matter is fighting right now. And so, yeah, I, I didn't want to be tropical, guys, because that's usually the only way that Latino writers can get into a system that only has 1% of their books being Latino. Roberto, appreciate very much you being with us this morning. Thank you and good luck with the book. Congratulations on it again. A, a real pleasure, Michael. Thank you. It's Roberto Lovato. His new memoir is called Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. And Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. And our intern is Jameson Weiss. Executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. And I remind you, always like to hear from listeners if you have something you'd like to suggest for Forum or if you have something you'd like to say about the Forum program, uh, let us know. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Thanks for being a part of this morning's program. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.